recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Welcome to episode number 26 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchie, along with Ewan Christie. Hello, Cameron. Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter, and you can find that at digitalbitspr.com. So if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend. It's the best way to get the word out. Uh, you can also follow us on social media. We're on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The account name's PR Law Podcast, all one word, so it's easy to find. And you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel or SoundCloud channel, not to miss an episode. And lastly, something new this week, Ewan, we have finally, after popular demand, launched a newsletter. So you can sign up to get notified when new episodes drop. Another exciting news about the show at prlawpodcast.club. So that's that's the link, prlawpodcast.club. What's All happening? Right, we got a club. That's right, finally, <laughs> finally. It's like a rite of passage. What's going on, Ewan? Uh, not too much, not too much. I'm, I'm fighting a bit of a cold. Um, so this is I, I concerning. What are my your... radio voice may sound even better, actually, this week, Cam. What are your symptoms, Ewan? My, yes, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I, I just, uh, I've got a runny nose. I'm a little congested. That's it. That's it, folks. Um, I'm, right. I'm okay. Of course, we have a, you know, I think a lot of jurisdictions are doing this, Cam. We kind of have a policy here where if you have a child at school and they come home with a runny nose, then you are not allowed to send them back to school until they have received a negative COVID test result. So, of course, our daughter came home with a runny nose on Wednesday. Uh, we kept her home Thursday and Friday. And by Thursday night, I had a runny nose. Mm-hmm. And then by Friday morning, That's my wife had a runny nose. So we're now uh, an isolating house full of congestion and um and all kinds of fun stuff and but you've taken the test right you guys have all yes, done the we, we, test. we have we've 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 taken the test um and you, that that's it those are all the symptoms that we have thankfully so we're you know children get colds in the fall so i i understand you know people are obviously particularly scared and and a little uh shall i even say paranoid given everything <laughs> that's going on and yeah in maybe some cases for very, good reason yeah well, yeah, justifiably, justifiably so, of course. Um, but yeah, so we're 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 staying at home. We're we're building a lot of puzzles, Cam. Um, well, the good the, the good news, Ewan, is I assume you were not uh, around the president over the last few days because uh, I'd be a little more concerned then. What, did something happen to the president, Cam? <laughs> yes. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting because the one thing I kind of wanted to talk about this week was actually the debate. I don't know if you caught the debate, you in between uh, Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump, um, which was quite I found it difficult to watch. Um, but but now with the with the president coming down with with COVID-19, uh, I think I'm going to dive into that issue a little bit when we get to the PR segment today. Yeah, I, I, I watched it. Um, you know, I was kind of continually having to pick my jaw up from the ground. It was uh, it was more like a couple of prize fighters that had come out of retirement for a scrap than a, than a presidential <laughs> debate. Um, and, you know, it's sort of interesting looking, reading up and watching some of the press. 
after the fact where everybody was saying, oh, this is a, you know, this is a disgrace. It's uh, it's an embarrassment. And um, I mean, I, I, I can certainly see how you might perceive it that way as an American. I mean, as a Canadian, um, you can just sort of sit back and kind of and kind of laugh. Um, and, uh, and that's, you know, maybe that's kind of what I was doing a little bit thinking, wow, whatever I might say about my own political system and whatever issues I might have about our own government and Canadian politics. Um, we still don't have anything quite like, quite like this. I mean, even the, even the graphics, if you were, if you recall cam, they had them sort of, you know, Biden and Trump head to head again, like it was like a UFC match or something like that going into it. It was, uh, it was really something else, something to behold. Well, you did have Rob Ford there in Toronto for a while, which isn't that far off, but uh, not not at the uh, the presidential level. You know, the interesting thing about it, and I, I mean, I'm on the record as being extremely disappointed in the news coverage of politics in the U S in general. And I do hold the press corps somewhat responsible for the kind of mess that we're in. But I mean, in listening to the sort of conversations and, and going through the media coverage, there was very much a, a negative tone along the lines of this was a train wreck. It was difficult to watch. You know, America's in a very sad state, which is sort of demonstrated by this debate. And it's sort of seems like the blame is then equally placed on both sides. And I understand that that's a good way to kind of look at it to try and be fair. But I mean, in reality, it's not both sides. It's one side that was extremely difficult during that debate. It was one side, you know, who was continually cutting off the other candidate to the point where Chris Wallace, you know, called out the president for that directly and said that, you know, you're the prime person who's interrupting the most. Um, so I, it's that kind of coverage that kind of bothers me because, um, in general, I think Joe Biden said a few things that I'm sure he'd like back. I don't think he should have called the president a clown, for instance. I think shut up probably isn't useful, uh, in a presidential debate. I understand why he said those things, but not exactly presidential. Um, but outside of those couple of things, uh, it was the president who really kind of pulled that debate down. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess in, in, Generally speaking, I agree. But uh, again, for the purposes of presidential debate, under no circumstances should either individual be referring to the other as a clown, um, which which Biden did twice, I believe, and telling the president to shut up, man. Um, I don't even think he referred to him as Mr. President <laughs> once. I, and again, I understand that a lot of the, the press was, well, imagine being in that circumstance. Imagine how frustrating it must be and how difficult it would have been to hold back, to be constantly interrupted. And yeah, and I, I get that and I appreciate that. But again, you're just talking about lowering the bar once again. And um, I, I just don't really think that that kind of language has any place. No, of course uh, in, not. In a presidential um, debate. Right? Absolutely not. Uh, and I pointed that out that those two things I think he would probably regret saying. But uh, the interesting thing is because you have two people and so you try and be fair. So we go to Biden and say, well, he wasn't great either because he said these two things, which is true, but it's nowhere near the level of interruption and insults and, you know, calling the other. I mean, uh, President Trump called his, his son a drug addict. I mean, this goes way beyond and it was so frequent. Um, and I get like the media needs to be balanced. 
And so we know Trump misbehaved. We expect it. Uh, and then we have to look for where Biden misbehaved to kind of present a full picture. But I, I don't think the proportions are correct when we kind of do it that way. But I get why, it, why it's done that way. Um, but anyway, that's, that's a whole other, whole other discussion. I wish we could go into it a bit more because I think there were some sort of interesting parts there. But it looks like there's still two debates to come. I don't think the first debate was changed anybody's mind about anything. And I've talked to a few Trump fans after it who thought the president was effective and quite good. And I saw the poll numbers that came out afterwards and it looked just like the poll numbers before. <laughs> it basically hasn't yeah. changed. So I'm not sure how useful that was. Um, and I'm not sure how they're going to go ahead with the next two. Um, other than I know they're going to make some changes to the format. And I don't know if that's going to mean cutting microphones or what, but there's going to have to be something done. Otherwise, I don't think these are worth holding. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. All right, Ewan, what do you have on deck today? Well, I'm talking about Walmart, Cam. Hmm. Good old good old Walmart. Um, recently, they settled a, a class action lawsuit um, agreeing to pay 20 million bucks to settle a company-wide hiring lawsuit that was filed by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, Cam, in the hmm. U.S. So this is a, a federal agency that administers and enforces civil rights laws against workplace disc discrimination. Mm -hmm. So the allegation here was sex discrimination. Uh, and the, the specific issue was a, a physical agility test that was required to be an order filler at, at Walmart's uh, grocery distribution center. And the argument was that the test disproportionately excluded female applicants so and therefore what, resulting in what was sorry? the, what was the test? Well, the issue was you had to be able to lift certain, certain objects of a particular weight and uh, women were arguing, well, this particular test disproportion, disproport, disproportionately discriminates against me on the basis of my gender. Did they say um, what the weight was? Good, good question. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. I that don't seems know kind of consequential, right? Like if it was, you need to be able to lift 10 pounds. Um, I would say that's not discriminatory, but if you had to, you know, bench press a ton, then, then it would be. So I think the, the actual weight would kind of come into this debate. I, I imagine. Well, well, I, I, and I, and I wouldn't disagree with you, but I mean, from, from a perspective of, is it discriminatory or is it not discriminatory? So there's the, the pre-employment test results have to show that there's a, a, a disparate impact, right? So the employer actually has to show that the test, whatever the test is, that it's necessary for the performance of that specific job and that there are not any alternative practices that can meet the employer's objective. So, I mean, for example, if it was lifting a heavy box, for example, and the, the one employee couldn't do it, is there some other task that the, that particular employee could perform instead, um, that would still meet the criteria of the job? Right. I mean, this is this is sort of what we're what we're talking about. In any event, um, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, they they were of the opinion that Walmart dropped the ball on this or the box, I guess, as it were, um, in that 
they didn't appropriately and sufficiently provide alternatives to perform the job and just outright said, well, if you can't do X, then you can't have the job. And that was, that was where the discriminatory conduct came into play. Yeah. I, I, I guess some of this isn't adding up. I, I'm, I might be missing something, but I mean, so order fillers are, they're not handling groceries. They're, they're in the distribution centers, sort of like the Amazon uh, distribution centers where they're fulfilling orders for delivery um, elsewhere. So there's the, you, you are in an, in a, in a warehouse when you're doing this. Um, and so it's quite physical work. Uh, it's similar to the, to the Amazon distribution houses. So I guess I'm, if I'm the employer, and again, you know, the ins and outs of this case much better than I do, but if I'm the employer and you, you, you need to hire people who have a physical capability of sort of dealing with the, it's, it's sort of like a, a construction site perhaps where you are hauling heavy goods around. Um, and I get that if someone's already working there, you would find somewhere else for them to, to work potentially rather than fire them. Um, but, but what sort of protections are there then for companies who, when they require this kind of physical um, exertion or this kind of ability, how can they hire to fill that? Because it seems odd if, if it was a physically demanding job, but they, but Walmart was unable to sort of, filter out the necessary candidates who could handle that. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a great, it's a great question. And to be perfectly honest with you, it's a really, really difficult question to answer. I mean, in, in Canada, we've had a difficult time addressing this question as well. There was a really, really famous case going all the way back to 1999 cam that dealt with a, a woman who was a forest firefighter in BC. And she argued something very, very similar. She argued that the physical test that was required to become a forest firefighter was discriminatory and that it didn't accurately reflect what the duties and tasks were of a forest firefighter on the job and said that the pre-screening test that was required effectively was just something that was arbitrarily made up um, by the firefighters and should be struck down on that basis and that the test should more accurately reflect what the role is. So that's sort of, again, we're, we're sort of, we're sort of talking about the same thing, right? It's, it's not necessarily, Hey, I can't lift a box. Um, and therefore I can't have the job. Really, what we're talking about is, are there reasonable alternatives that the individual can perform in that role, that the employer can accommodate the employee in that role such that they could still adequately perform the day-to-day tasks of the position? And if you're going to have any pre-screening tests for these types of roles, it has to accurately reflect whatever it is that the daily tasks are in order to perform that role, right? So you can't arbitrarily make these things up. And, you know, employers really have to be careful with pre-screening tests in general, because there's all kinds of ways that pre-screening tests for a whole, a whole host of positions could be deemed to be discriminatory from an adverse perspective, not necessarily on the basis of, of sex or an ability to, to lift something that's a particular weight. If it could be perceived that you would have a, you know, some sort of unfair advantage as a particular gender or of someone of a particular race or ethnicity, then yeah, the employer could find themselves in, in hot water in that regard. It's an interesting area to step into because you're basically telling a company that they 
need to hire people that maybe they were trying to screen out, which is how every hiring process works. Like you screen people out, but it just can't be on the basis of these, these things like, you know, race and, and sex and things like that. And then obviously I think what they're trying to address is the proxies for those things, such as yeah, strength or, or whatever else it might be that could be sort of used as a stand in. Um, but how, how was he or she able to kind of, justify that this was a, a discriminatory practice well well again i mean they were dealing with with the the eeoc right this sort of employment mm. this equal, equal employment opportunity, opportunity yeah. commission so they they effectively cut a deal with the commission um to make it to make the matter go away and you know and and this is sort of an interesting issue from a pr perspective as well cam as we've talked about before we sort of have the very we have the legal on one side right and then we have the very practical on the other so if you've got a bunch of bad press and you're walmart and there's all kinds of arguments out there suggesting that your practices are discriminatory and discriminate against women and this isn't an isolated case you know walmart has had to deal with sex discrimination cases in in the past um you know issues with men being disproportionately hired in more advantageous positions at, at the company than women, um, men being promoted to yeah, managerial these are, these positions are different, more though. frequently. Yeah, I think these um, are clear. Inequity and pay. So, yeah, you know, there's, there, no there's a really there. compelling case to just make mm -hmm. it go away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... Um, so the one thing that, that people will say always is, is a, pay, a buyout or a payout doesn't indicate guilt. Um, and that's very true in the PR side, because if you're taking a look, even if you are right, or even if you have a strong case, the question is always, do you actually want this to go to a, a trial or a jury or to have people hear it out? Because it's going to take some time. It's going to take some money. It's going to be in the news repeatedly uh, throughout that process. And so it's often easier just to just to make the payment and have it go away. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean guilt, but it gets it away because you want to protect the business, which is ultimately, you know, goal number one. Um, so, well, I, well, I was going to say, well, and you also want to, you also want to demonstrate that as a company, you take these issues seriously, right? I mean, when you're faced with these sorts of, these sorts of issues, you, you, you kind of have, you can kind of go one of two ways. You can sort of issue a PR statement and say, well, it's, you know, this is, this is patently false. It's the, our company would never do such a thing. We take, you know, gender discrimination issues very, very seriously as a company. And we seek to promote whatever, you know, um, women, women at every turn, you can sort of do that. Or, you know, you can sort of say, well, you know, how long is this going to drag on for? How many articles are we going to have circulating on the internet, you know, suggesting or inferring that Walmart is, is a, bad place to work as as a woman what's so the impact coming, be on the bottom line you're coming at it with a presumption of guilt though and i'm not so sure that's the case right so if 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 walmart actually feels that this test absolutely is justified and they don't regret doing it and they're going to maybe alter it but have something similar going forward um, it doesn't necessarily make sense to come out and make a big statement about it because in Walmart's case, they would say, we already take this seriously. Like it really depends what exactly happened. It's, it's really hard to say without the details, the, you know, the amount of weight they had to carry and how everything was sort of structured. Um, but, but in general, I mean, if they're, if they feel guilty about it, if they feel caught, 
um, then they could make a, a, a bigger statement, I think. But it really is case by case because there's not there's not something here you would say, you know, for sure when you're in this situation, do A. And if the circumstances are, you know, different, do B. Uh, it doesn't work that way because it does depend on the details. It depends on the time. It depends on who's accusing you. I think having the equal opportunities or the equal employment commission involved is a, is a factor because they probably have resources as well to draw public attention towards it. And so you look at it and go, even if, again, even if you don't feel that you are guilty, you just, you do want it to go away. And that's one way to, to handle it. And the interesting thing too, and I, I just wanted to point this out because in Hong Kong, for instance, you know, when I was at the exchange, this is a sort of trilingual city. You know, we have Cantonese and, and Mandarin and English, English and Cantonese, the two official languages here. Um, but oftentimes, you know, we would need a native English speaker for a role because it involved speaking English or writing English in press releases or other publications. And so by nature, it almost excludes Chinese people then almost along racial lines, almost perfectly. And yet there's a justification. Now, of course, it's not absolutely along racial lines because there are native-born Canadians and Americans and Europeans who, who speak native English, that have a Chinese face. But I, this is sort of an example of when you go down this path, the whole point of screening for a role is to screen out the people that you don't think would be suitable or who have demonstrated that they are not suitable through, you know, we would provide a written test, for instance. Um, so I, I can see how this is a very, very delicate thing for companies to, to try and dance around. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. In, in many regards, I think this was sort of an easy sort of no brainer for Walmart. So, I mean, in, in addition to the financial settlement, one of the things Walmart agreed to was to cease all physical agil agility testing for the position. And again, I think that's a no brainer from from sort of a business perspective um, and a very, very practical and PR perspective to, to demonstrate we've listened, we've heard. We, we, we are changing. Um, you know what else that tells me, yeah. though, is that they don't actually need that strength, right? That, that, that is an admission of guilt to some degree if they're getting rid of the test because then you didn't need it there in the first place. Because if, if, if you really needed people to be lifting these things, even after this case, you would have to have some kind of way to make sure that they could do so, right? Um, so <laughs> well, this is, this is yeah. I don't know. I mean, this is sort of interesting. I feel as though we've, we've sort of flipped sides here where I'm kind of making PR arguments and you're making legal arguments <laughs> in so much, in so much as, um, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that I would, I don't know that I would agree with that. Um, I suspect that there may very well have been physical requirements for the role, um, that were adequately screened through a pre-screening test. I think you you just sort of have to weigh, the pros and cons of, you know, what, what's the real advantage of maintaining that pre-screening test versus all of the bad press and, you know, further repercussions from subsequent litigation that might ensue from trying to maintain it or, or modify it in some way. I think kind of the easy thing to do for the company in that regard is to just get rid of it altogether. So are you of the mind then that all physical test is, is discriminatory? No, no, not, okay. not at all. Not okay. at all. I, what I'm, what I'm for and what I, you know, advise em, employers to do is, you know, you have to make sure that you're establishing some form of procedural fairness across the board, right? So there has to be, you have to have transparency in this regard. So any pre-employment testing screening um, 
you know, to ensure you've got to ensure the test is validated for that specific position and that it cannot be construed as discriminatory on any prohibited ground. And this is the problem, right? More often than not, when you have HR managers or employees within the company that put together these pre-screening tests, they're not the individuals that actually perform the tasks themselves. And more often than not, they take very, very broad strokes in putting these pre-screening tests together. And you have to be very, very, very careful when you're doing that Mm -hmm. because you do open yourself to all kinds of liability in terms of a pre-screening test being discriminatory in some way. So I'm not suggesting you can't pre-screen, that you can't have these tests. Of course, a lot of positions, it's it's an absolute requirement. I mean, for example, if you have a role where you're answering phones and you know for a fact that it's a 50-50 split that the people calling are either going to be speaking English or speaking French, well, then you can't have an individual who who isn't bilingual occupying that position. So, you know, you, you, you do sort of have to have screening screening procedures for a lot of different roles. Just, you know, make sure you, you sort of dot your I's and cross your T's when you put them together, because these sorts of lawsuits, not only are they expensive, but when they get out into the public realm, the public domain, they can be really, really problematic from a PR and, and um, an optics perspective. Yeah. And I know you, you touched on this just now about sort of the advice you would give to companies, but even more specifically, sort of in this case, either with Walmart or with a job that has some kind of physical element. So yes, firefighter would be an example. Um, I think pilots used to have some sort of physical training as well. Like how, how would you advise companies to go about that in a way that would not get them into trouble? Because I think a lot of times you're right. What you just said, like people putting the job description or the test together are HR people that are not going to be in that job and use very broad strokes to sort of define who that person should be. And so a lot of this, I do think would be inadvertent in many cases with these companies. So, I mean, how, how would you advise them to, to deal with this specifically if there's a sort of physical element to the role? Well, I, I mean, first and foremost, consult with an employment lawyer. I mean, this is the other thing. (laughs) A lot of companies take it upon themselves that they're expertly suited to make these, these sorts of decisions. And they just, they just impose policies upon employees and assume that everything's fine. Well, it probably isn't fine. And the reality is, is that if you sit down with a decent employment lawyer, they can ensure that any of your policies and procedures are compliant with human rights legislation, with occupational health and safety legislation, because there may not just be a, a specific physical um, issue that's discriminatory. There could be any number of things. And you need to make sure that these policies are compliant with any relevant statutory legislation when you put them in place before you give them to the employees. And then when you do give them to the employees, make sure they review them, give them to them with employment agreements to ensure that every employee has a copy so you can avoid issues down the road with, well, hey, I never saw that. I didn't know that that was something that I had to do. I didn't know that that was a requirement. You need to avoid these issues right from the get-go. So sit down with someone who's well-suited to be able to go through your policy and identify any issues and don't assume that you're in a position to be able to do it yourself. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on. 
and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. One of the big stories this week, you and we talked about it off the top, is the president of the United States and his health condition. Um, after months of you know dealing with COVID around the world in the United States, uh, the president himself uh, has tested positive for for COVID nineteen. Now. Obviously, I don't want to go through the medical side of things. That's not the reason that I'm bringing this up. But it really is about how the White House has been communicating about this, because there have been some questionable moments, and the chronology has gotten mixed up a little bit in some of the communications. And it's a, it's such a great example of when a company or an organization or a political office is quite disorganized and a bit chaotic with information. I think this is such a good example of that. I want to play a clip here from Kelly O'Donnell, and she's with NBC News, and she's at uh, Walter or outside of Walter Reed Hospital, where the president is now as we record this. Ten white coats stepping forward for the first time with an assessment of the hospitalized president's condition. Team and I are extremely happy with the progress the president has made. But that optimism from White House physician Sean Conley was quickly followed by confusing information about when the president became ill. Just 72 hours into the diagnosis now. That would mean a Wednesday diagnosis, not Thursday, suggesting President Trump knowingly traveled to a Minnesota rally and a fundraiser at his Bedminster Club in New Jersey with covid but later, the White House issued this memo to correct the timeline. Dr. Conley writing, I incorrectly used the term 72 hours instead of day three. Thursday afternoon, uh, following, uh, uh, following the news of a close contact is when we, we repeated testing um, and given kind of clinical indications at a little bit more concern. Another issue, use of supplemental oxygen. Dr. Conley spoke in present tense. He's not on oxygen right now. That's right. And evaded when reporters repeatedly pressed for clarity. Thursday, no oxygen. None at this moment. Yeah. And yesterday with the team, uh, while, while we were all here, he was not on oxygen. But the Associated Press and New York Times report that President Trump was given oxygen Friday before he was hospitalized. And more worrisome, a source familiar with President Trump's condition told reporters today... The next 48 hours will be critical in terms of his care. We are still not on a clear path to a full recovery. There's a lot in there, Ewan. And I want to leave the oxygen discussion to the side uh, because I think obviously the doctor had some difficulty in managing that question. Um, But I want to go back to the timeline a little bit. So it broke, and I'm going to use sort of Eastern time here. Uh, I'm based in Hong Kong, so the the dates are slightly different. Um, So I'm going to go with, with Eastern time in the United States. So it was Thursday, Friday morning, uh, that it was announced that Trump had COVID-19, him and the first lady. So that's when the news came out and they said he had tested positive um, a few hours before. Um, and if we go back a couple of days, Hope Hicks, who is his one of his top advisors, uh, she's worked for the Trump family for years. She went to Fox News for a bit. Now she's back with, with Trump again. Uh, she began exhibiting symptoms Wednesday 
Wednesday evening. So there was a rally in Minnesota that day on the flight back to Washington. That's when she uh, began to exhibit symptoms. So this was really all of the information that we knew at the time. What has come out since, though, is that Hope Hicks was actually tested positive, and Trump knew that and went on Thursday. So again, Hope Hicks coming back Wednesday night from Minnesota, showing symptoms. She got tested. Test was positive. On Thursday, Trump flew to New Jersey for a fundraiser and a campaign event. Now, this is noteworthy because Hope Hicks at this time had already been diagnosed and Trump is around her a lot. So he knew at the time that he had at least been exposed to COVID-19 and still went ahead with the visit and still went ahead with that visit without wearing a mask. And then hours after that event, it was announced that Donald Trump was positive. So this is problematic in so many different ways, Ewan. And the reason I bring this up is it's not just because he's the president. In this case, the public interest is because he is the president and because Americans have a right to know of the health, especially if it's a serious health problem uh, with the president, they, they do deserve to know. So it's important that the White House communicates that. But it's not just in politics, though. You'll see this with companies as well. Uh, I think a, a really good example is if there's maybe a merger or an acquisition underway um, that, that a company is aware of that ends up getting leaked um, they then need to respond very quickly because there's laws and regulations around securities and around M&A and those sorts of things. So a lot of public interest uh, and a lot of business interest in those things. And so there's pressure to get information out. So this does happen um, in different organizations. And I think, you know, the White House really had a hard time managing this one right from the very beginning. Isn't this also just a great example of... You've got Dr. Conley, who's a physician, who's not a PR guy, who's out there, you know, effectively being thrown to the wolves, who are going to ask a million and one difficult questions. I mean, how do you how do you sort of address an issue like that? I mean, I understand that the physician needs to give a statement because he's the physician, um, but really, he's not a PR guy. He's not a communications guy. So how do you sort of how do you prep somebody like that for for a situation like that? So the White House decided to let uh, Sean Conley speak on Friday or sorry, on Saturday. Actually, he spoke uh, and he talked about the 72 hours, which which he had to, to had to walk back. But he uh, he had released a statement Friday night. So I know the timeline here is getting a bit confusing. So Friday morning, it was announced Trump tested positive. And then Friday night, Trump was taken to Walter Reed Medical Center. And then a memo from Sean Conley was released saying that um, Trump was not on oxygen and he was resting comfortably. Then Saturday is when Sean Conley spoke to the media. Now, you're absolutely right, Ewan. I think listening to him speak, he's obviously not trained as a spokesperson. But this is an interesting case because you usually don't want your PR person to go out there and speak because you want the business leader or the person most familiar with that area to speak because they have the knowledge to do so. And in this case, obviously, he's a doctor, so he can take those sort of medical questions. So it's, I think the thinking was right to put him there provided that he had some level of training. And I get the impression that he might have had some, but not much. Because on the question around oxygen, 
I think it's clear that at some point the president was on oxygen based on what he said, because he was very deliberate to say he's not on oxygen now. And he wasn't, I think he mentioned the day before, uh, and he wouldn't go further than that, which basically is an admission that he was on oxygen. And if that wasn't to be public, then he failed in his role because that's the, that's the, that's the information that got across to, to people. So in a case like that, I think the, the, the easiest way to handle that is just say, you know, he's undergoing medical care and we're not going to get into the specifics, you know, but once we're, once we're done, we'll be happy to go through, you know, some of the treatments that we've provided and just leave it, leave it at that. Uh, he's not obligated to answer these sorts of detailed questions, but in the way he handled it, he did create more problems for himself. Yeah. And that, I think that's, precisely what struck me as off is that there were specific questions that he chose to address and then other specific questions where he said, I'm not going to get into the specifics. <laughs> and that just sort of, you know, when you're, when you're answering the specific questions that you think are favorable to whatever sort of perspective you're trying to put out and then avoiding the ones that are unfavorable. I mean, really, it just makes matters worse. So actually, that sounds like really great advice. Why not just say right from the get go, we're not going to address any of these specific questions and just keep it really, really broad strokes. If you know, it, it almost strikes me as if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Sort of sort of yeah. scenario. Cam. I, I mean, I can almost guarantee that they talk to him about information that he should not share. I mean, there's things going on behind the scenes that he would be aware of that is really not for public consumption. And that's understandable. I mean, I, I get that. And I think a lot of people in business and people speaking to the press are often in that situation where they can talk about some things, but they can't talk about other things. Um, and like you said, coming out and saying that off the top would be one good way to do that. But I think even in lieu of that, I think for, for people who are familiar or who are comfortable speaking to the media, they can manage in a way that gives confidence. Because one of the issues with Dr. Conley is because he kind of stumbled there a little bit and because he was being so choosy and careful with his words, that's sort of like sharks that smell blood in that case. Like the journalists then Absolutely. know that he's maybe not on top of his game or this isn't the area that he's well-trained in. And so they're going to fire more questions at him for, for that reason. Um, and I, he, listen, like he's in a very difficult situation. I, I, I do have sympathy for him. He is a doctor. He's not a media spokesperson. I can't think of professions that could be more distant than those two. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, he, 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 this is an important role that he's filling. He's speaking about the president's health while the president is in hospital. And so he did need some coaching before going on television. Yeah, it, it almost sounds like, I mean, really, this just comes across as bad prep. Whoever it was that sat down with him and said, you know, here's what you don't say. It's kind of like if I tell you not to say this word, then obviously all you're going to think about is that particular word. And someone sat down with him and said, do not address this issue. Do not talk about this <laughs> issue. If you're asked about this, do not say this such that when he was prompted with those questions, he was just you know, sort of flailing in the wind because that's really how it came across. Mm -hmm. So I was watching it and I'm thinking this guy wasn't adequately prepped. And 
I, I can't even imagine how difficult of a position it must be as a physician to have to go out and play that role because you're right. I mean, it's, it, that's not his job. His job is to be a physician and to be a good one at that. Um, not to field sort of really, really convoluted questions that are strategically designed to try and trip him up in his words. Yeah. And if we're, if we're going to stand back and say, what are the lessons here? So, I mean, in companies that I've worked in or worked with, usually you would have a subject area spokesperson. So it's not not someone from the PR department, usually, because the PR department obviously is not going to know the business inside and out. It's not going to be able to to talk specifics. I mean, one example, I mean, I worked at the MTR, the, the subway operator in Hong Kong. They run subways around the world. I mean, I'm not going to stand up before the press and start talking about the, the engineering or the signaling systems and, you know, things like that. It's, 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 it's not possible. So what you, what you do is you do have a primary spokesperson who can address those questions and then usually a backup, and then they will go through intense media uh, training. And I've been through those training sessions. They are intense. They are not a joke. Um, I mean, in, in, in cases that we've had, we would bring, you know, two or three executives at a time uh, with an agency and they would sit down and we would start going through some theory and things like that. And then we would say, OK, um, you know, it's um, we'll, we'll take 15 minutes for a coffee. You can run to the washroom, whatever. And we would get camera crews to stand outside the washroom. So when that executive came out, suddenly there were cameras and lights in his face, completely unexpected, and then firing questions because it genuinely catches them off guard. And it's a good example of sort of how this could happen in real life. And it's really jarring and it's very difficult, but it sort of it helps them understand the seriousness of that and of those situations. And if, you know, if you say the wrong thing, if you provide information that you shouldn't, maybe it's just going to be a small gaffe. Maybe it's not a big deal. Maybe someone doesn't notice, but it could be a huge deal. It could land you in court. It could mean, you know, breaking securities law. It could mean all kinds of different things. So you have to constantly be sharp and ready. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. We sort of teach similar training in litigation um, in terms of answering questions from from the court. You know, a common issue when you go before a judge and you're sort of presenting your case is a judge will try and present some sort of anecdote that they can kind of relate to that may be quite tangential to whatever it is that you're presenting to the court. And, you know, you're sort of trained not to go down that road, right? Keep, keep it on point, Mm -hmm. bring it back and bring the judge back. So don't, don't get involved in a situation where you're trying to answer questions that are tangentially related to the case that you're presenting to the court, bring it back, keep it focused and do not get off those, those talking points as much as a judge, or I I suspect in your line of work, Cam, a reporter um, when they're, when they're trying to get you to go there. Yeah. And I think people probably know this already, but some of the sort of inside baseball is we, we would tell people you don't, you're not obligated to answer the question that you've been asked. You do not have to answer that question. So if someone asks you something, just you can answer a different question. You can steer the conversation to something that you do want to talk about. And this takes time. It takes time to learn because it's in people's instinct to address a question head on. That's sort of how we live life in general, I think. Um, but in these cases, you know, you, you can be trained over time to just really handle these in a, in a, in a delicate but effective way. And, and, you know, Sean Conley may get there at some point. Uh, certainly good practice he's getting right now. 
Um, but I, I wanted to mention just one other thing sort of in the in the communications that came out of the White House. I'm not sure if you saw this, Ewan, but um, the president did release a video uh, and I watched it and in it he looks pale uh, and he's sitting at a desk and he's wearing a suit with no tie uh, and he's talking about the good medical care that he's receiving and he's going to be Okay, um, this is obviously to sort of allay any fears or concerns about the seriousness of the illness. And these kinds of things can work. It's really interesting because this is something that China often does. Because when there's a, um, you know, oftentimes there's purges in the Communist Party or there's, you know, leaders that have come under investigation or, or something like that or health problems. Um, and they will trot them out at some event somewhere just to let the media know, here he is, he's okay, don't worry about it. Uh, and this kind of reminded me of that a little bit. And I'm not sure if it did much to allay the fears. That's where I'm not sure if it was effective or not, because he does look pale. Um, I mean, he looks much better than some of the reports that, you know, he, he could be in, in grave condition. So I guess it would sort of head off some of that concern. Um, but, it, but it also wasn't, wasn't that effective of what they were trying to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I watched it as well. And I thought it just raised more questions than, than answers. I, I can understand strategically why it was something that he, he or the administration wanted to do. Um, whether or not it was particularly effective. I mean, I suspect they probably could have accomplished the same thing with a, with a photo and a brief statement as opposed to sort of a, you know, a four and a half minute video. Yeah. And lastly on this, you and the last PR point I'll make is in, in these kinds of situations, you may want to do a twice a day briefing and it doesn't have to be very formal. It doesn't mean calling people to a room necessarily, but maybe you do a phone call or maybe you do a Zoom call or just a, you know, a regular update on how things are going. And I think keeping the communication lines open, setting that up so it's something regular that reporters can expect, it provides some level of calm to some degree because at the moment we don't know what's happening and we don't know when we're going to hear about what's happening either. And that leads to speculation um, and predictions and all of that sort of stuff that isn't helpful, right? Like you, you do want to make sure that the information going to the public is accurate and it's coming from you. And to do that, you have to speak fairly frequently, even if there's not much to say, just something is better than nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we leave it at that. Something's better than nothing. Wait. Wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa. Hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out. Check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR in law podcast. What do you got, dog? Two things. One, I'll, um, I'll go through relatively quickly. The, f the first thing is a, a New Yorker article that I read. Um, it's called the students left behind by remote learning. I don't know if you saw this cam. It was by Alec McGillis. And I saw it. Really, I haven't read it, though. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's a really, really good long form article uh, addressing probably remote learning in Baltimore. And, you know, we know that there's a lot of students around the world, frankly, right now that are remote learning. And, and uh, reading this article sort of really raised a number of of issues that I hadn't even considered. So, you know, things like, what do you do, Cam, when you don't have access to the internet and you're remote learning because your schools are closed or even access to a computer uh, or you're, you know, a child with um, that has a, a single parent that needs to go to work, that can't stay home to supervise you. 
Um, when you have issues like links for virtual classes changing at the last minute, um, when students aren't logging on for classes such that, that teachers can keep tabs on, on what they're doing and what's going on. It just all of these sorts of, of issues that were addressed um, as highly problematic and that the longer that this goes on, the greater the impact to, to student well-being and the overall education system we're, we're going to see. So a really, really compelling article that you should, you should get around to reading. And I imagine the bigger gap in terms of wealth and knowledge too, because if you're, if you're behind already to the point you don't have internet at home or, or maybe not the funds to get a computer or an iPad, this only puts you further behind. Um, it's, it's really, it's really difficult. Um, yeah, it's, it's sad what's happening. Well, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, not everybody has rock solid Wi-Fi connections such that they can record podcasts from opposite ends <laughs> of the, of the earth in, in real time. Um, yeah, these, these are, these are ongoing issues and particularly in low, lower socioeconomic parts of, of Canada, the United States, of, of Europe, of, of, of everywhere. These continue to be serious ongoing concerns. Yeah, I, it just occurred to me as you were talking there too, and this is another big subject, but just the importance of the internet. Like if the government was to subsidize something that would be helpful for people, maybe it's the internet. Because, I mean, obviously there's a lot of room there for abuse. If you're just watching Netflix, that's one thing. But, I mean, you, you, you need the internet basically to apply for a job, to learn something, to sign up for something. I mean, it's so critical to communications and everything that if you're right, if you don't have a connection, I mean, education is huge. And yet that's just one area that you wouldn't have access to. Yeah. Well, and in in this article just sort of underscores that point from, from an educational perspective. So yeah, it's a good read. The only other thing I wanted to mention is, uh, is a really, really great show that um, my wife and I have, have taken to watching on, on Netflix, which is called street food. Asia. Ooh, I've seen this. seen this. Well, I have not seen, have it. seen I, it. I haven't seen an episode of it, but I saw it as I was flicking through Netflix. And yes, it looks like something I want to watch. Yeah. So look, I mean, there's no shortage of cooking programs on television. So it's always sort of a tough sell. Why should you watch this one over another one? So let me try and give you know some some reasons as to why this one's worth your time. Uh, first of all, the episodes are are nice and short. They're only about, you know, 28 to 32 minutes long. So you can kind of quickly get an episode in, even if you you don't have a great deal of time. The other thing I love about this is it's beautifully, beautifully shot. The cinematography is just fantastic. And they do a, an incredible job of really transporting you to the street with these cooks such that you, you can almost smell the food coming, uh. coming off the grill or the walk or whatever they're cooking in. Um, the third thing I love is just the cities that they've chosen to, to examine. So, you know, they look at Osaka in Japan, Cam, uh, Bangkok in Thailand, uh, Chai in, in Taiwan, and they, they really drill down to one or two cooks to one or two street vendors um, that cook a particular dish that's of some significance to the culture, to the country at large. And so you sort of get that human element as well, which honestly I found to be quite moving because some of the backstories of some of these chefs, they're just astounding, just really, really incredible. And some of them are third and fourth generation street street food vendors who are still using recipes that were passed down by them from their great grandparents. 
Um, yeah. So I was sort of, I connected not only with the food, but I really connected, um, with, with the chefs and the depictions of their backstory. So anyway, check that yeah. one out. You know, I, I think I'm, well, for sure I'm going to watch it, but I, I think the feeling that I will have is just sort of depression and not being able to travel. Uh, cause that really drives it home. I mean, I was just thinking the other day, like I have not been anywhere since January, obviously. And, you know, I think we're on the same page you and a little bit about sort of the street food in, in Southeast Asia or Asia in general. I mean, it's one of the real treats of traveling to these places. I mean, the hawker markets in Singapore, for instance, are incredible. But Bangkok, the other ones you mentioned, Osaka, the food is just so good and it's so cheap and it's so plentiful that it's just you don't have to put much effort to explore, you just walk around, you just walk around and eat things that smell good and look good. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, it's something I definitely miss doing. Yeah. And they, they, they touch upon that in the, there's an episode in, in Delhi as well. And they talk about the egalitarian element of street food. And I think mm-hmm. that that's something that I really miss when I'm in, when I'm in, in Canada, because of course we just don't have street food. It's just not, prevalent the way that it is in many countries around the world. But, um, you know, in Delhi, the fact that you have rich and poor that are sitting down in front of a a food stall and sitting, you know, on a little plastic chair at Mm -hmm. a table somewhere to enjoy the same meal. Um, and that that's not really something you see in, uh, in countries where you don't have that, that sort of that prevalence of street food, right? Yeah. And in some cases, these, these hawker markets or, or stalls have Michelin stars, in fact. So, I mean, Singapore has got a couple, um, that way. So they are, you know, well-recognized cooks behind the, behind the counter. So yeah. And it's so inexpensive. It's, it's great. Um, I, I just had one thing mainly to mention, but I've kind of got a second as sort of a distant just to bring up an honorable mention, maybe. So the honorable mention is the Ezra Klein Show podcast. Um, I've mentioned it before. I'm a big fan. It's probably my top three uh, podcasts. Um, I just think it's um, intellectually honest. It's weird to use that term. I sound a bit pretentious, but um, it, I mean, Ezra Klein's a very, mean yeah. Ezra Klein's a very smart guy, but he also asks questions and genuinely seeks to understand the other side. And so I appreciate that a lot. There's a curiosity that underpins a lot of what he does. That's genuine. Um, but anyway, he had a episode after the debate, which we touched on at the top of the show. Uh, the podcast episode is called a dark, dangerous debate. And he spoke about the debate with uh, Matt Iglesias, who I cannot stand listening to on podcasts because of his sing-songy voice. Uh, but he is he is also quite knowledgeable. So that's one, uh, the honorable mention. The main one I wanted to talk about is another podcast. Uh, I also listen to On the Media. Uh, it's done by WNYC. Uh, it's been around for a long time. And they basically do a show every week just looking at sort of media coverage and, and how things are reported. Um, the station is not conservative in any way. I once told an American friend of mine in Hong Kong that I've listened to WNYC and he said, oh yeah, that's uh, Radio Moscow. <laughs> and I thought, yes, okay, that's how it's known. Uh, but they, they did a, they did a uh, episode uh, called Armed and Dangerous and it looks at these militias that are appearing in the United States. 
and it talks about sort of the history um, of the the Second Amendment, um, but also sort of what happened at Waco, Texas in the 90s and how that's informing a lot of what's happening today with sort of these militias going into into cities to sort of crack down on the protesters. Um, it was a really interesting show. They had some great guests on there and um, it was quite illuminating to get some context of a where this comes from uh, and the sort of power behind it. So definitely one I recommend. Yeah. Oh, that sounds really, really cool because that's really something we don't, we just don't get here in Canada, right? The idea of the militias, that is just not part of our, it's just not part of our history um, and our collective consciousness the way that it is in the, in, in the U S yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talk about this a lot. I mean, Americans had to fight a violent, bloody battle to secure their independence. And that that spirit lives through that country, whereas we sort of had a negotiation uh, to bring things together. So just totally, totally different ways. It's, it's amazing how something like that so long ago can still really sort of imbue the culture with... Um, you know, a certain perspective or, or characteristic. Yeah. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, uh, yeah. Thank you for joining us, everybody. Don't miss a show. So please subscribe in your podcast app of choice, or you can subscribe to our YouTube or SoundCloud channels. Uh, and we're on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the account name PR law podcast, all one word P R L A W podcast. And as mentioned off the top, this is the first episode where we have a brand new newsletter, finally, that we've gotten off the ground. So you can sign up for that. Please do so. You can go to prlawpodcast.club, prlawpodcast.club. So that's it for you and Christy. This is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewing Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.